0: Welcome to a new episode of Black Future Doctor, a podcast dedicated to showcasing the experiences of Black doctoral students in the UK. I'm Nina, I'm a first year psychology PhD student at the University of Bath and I'm your host. And today I have with me Lois King, who is a second year PhD student in population health sciences at the University of Edinburgh. Hi Lois, it's great to have you with me today.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: No worries. First, can you tell me a little bit more about yourself and the subject of your PhD?
1: Mm -hmm. So I am a 25-year-old Ghanaian-born British-raised PhD student at University of Edinburgh in global health governance. So governance is one of those words where (laughs) a lot of people have different assumptions on what it means. But basically, when I say governance, I just mean you know how things are run in global health who are like the main influences Mm -hmm. so with my project regarding governance I'm looking at childhood pneumonia so I'm looking at political prioritization of policies to combat childhood pneumonia globally and how that affects local implementation in Bangladesh.
0: Okay is there any reason why you focused on Bangladesh specifically?
1: Yeah, so the research group that I'm with that is funding my PhD through NIHR is called Respire, and we work with partners in South Asia. So I I did have a pick of countries from South Asia, but Mm -hmm. I thought Bangladesh was a really interesting study to look at, you know, despite quite low public spending on health, they've had like massive, massive reductions in childhood pneumonia. Okay. So yeah, so I wanted to look into more of why that is. And having met with the partners from Bangladesh, I felt like there was a good rapport there. And also it's a smaller country than, say, India, so it's a bit easier to study as a foreigner.
0: Yeah, yeah, brilliant. So when did you first consider pursuing a PhD and what made you interested in this topic, I guess, more generally?
1: So it kind of, the whole thing in my head kind of boils down to like my mum's philosophy (laughs) because basically (laughs) she was like, I don't care what you do but just like be the best at what you do and get to like the top so for a while I was actually aiming for medicine that was because you know I liked human biology and I wanted to help people and my mum is an anaesthetist so I was like oh medicine that sounds cool but then in my final year of high school I did like there was this class called modern studies I, I don't know if you guys have that in England I don't think so
0: I mean I haven't come across it but honestly the curriculum at different schools can be so different I have no clue. Yeah
1: that's the thing so modern studies was kind of like it's kind of like current affairs stuff so yeah so we looked at you know affirmative action in the US but we also looked at what happened post apartheid in South Africa and then we looked at you know tobacco policies in Scotland so it was kind of like politics international Mm relations-ish and and I thought like the health promotion stuff that we studied was quite interesting but I didn't really I was still aiming for medicine and then I was rejected from medicine (laughs) so then I was like okay let me do my backup and biomedical sciences and then as I was doing it, my mum was kind of like, oh, it just seems like the parts of medicine that you like are public health. And I was like, what's public health? Because no one ever mm-hmm. tells you about it. Yeah. And then so i managed to do some relevant courses to that in undergrad. And then I was like, OK, this is great. I'll do a master's in public health. And then from that, that was when I really decided, OK, I really want to look at global health, look at infectious diseases. And look at how things are run, and like the policies and how policies are made. So yeah, it was kind of like a gradual realization. Mm-hmm.
0: So shift away, I guess, from I don't know if hands-on is the right word, but like that kind of yeah. face-to-face, in-person medicine to actually more research-related, yeah. but still in medicine. Yeah, like
1: research, but also implementation and stuff, mm-hmm. and you know, like I, I think I just found the idea of helping as many people as possible before like preventing them from getting to the point where they're sick enough to go to hospital kind of thing. Mm,
0: yeah exactly it, it feels kind of weird to say that research isn't hands-on because it is <gasps> but just like in a different way to I guess being a medical Yeah, but Yeah still that's the thing
1: it can feel really far removed especially in academia where you're you know writing mm-hmm. a lot of papers and teaching but yeah I think that sort of like policy to practice side is quite interesting to me
0: yeah and could you tell me just a little bit like what the transition was like I guess from being focused on pursuing a medical doctorate to you know changing over to a PhD instead
1: yeah so um in my undergrad for biomed it was very lab focused and I was like I hate working in labs like I want to be with people (laughs) (laughs) this is awful yeah and then I started studying tropical diseases and medical biology in my final year so then when I applied for the master's I ended up doing like a whole range of things like you know how to do a systematic review how to interview people but also looking at like global institutions like you know what is the role of the world bank in health mm-hmm. and the WHO world health organization so I think the transition was quite smooth because it was so gradual mm-hmm. yeah
0: brilliant all right. So I know you go to Edinburgh. Can you tell me about how you found it there? Because I know it's quite prestigious. Yeah.
1: So the thing is, because I also spent some of high school in Edinburgh, I was very like, I don't even know what the word is. But I, like to me, it was just, you know, my neighbourhood kind of thing. Yeah. So I actually didn't realise how prestigious it was because I just thought that, you know, only people in Scotland and maybe some people in England who wanted to leave home, like actually knew about Edinburgh, uh-huh. and then when I joined, I was like, "Oh wow, so many people all around the world like really aim for Edinburgh." Yeah. So it actually kind of hit me quite late. So funnily enough, it was my last choice, yeah. but I decided that you know if I still wanted to do medicine, I could just do postgrad. Yeah. So I was like, I I want to go to uni now. I'll just go to Edinburgh. Like I'm familiar with the city, but yeah, during during my time, it kind of, especially in undergrad, it kind of felt like. Though there were a lot of admin issues that affected our course. Okay. Because our school it, it's kind of confusing, but our school was linked with the biological school. We were biomed, but then they split up to a different college. So there was kind of <laughs> issues with the split and a lot of things that they trialed in our year to see if it worked or wouldn't work and a lot of stuff didn't work, you know, healing problems.
0: Yeah. You were the guinea pigs.
1: Yeah, literally. Literally, it felt like we were guinea pigs. And then, yeah, one of the main issues that I had with it was I was doing neuroscience. That was my decided honours. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the exam was insanely hard. It was like, you know, that typical unfair exam where it's only focused on like maybe 10% of the course and they miss out all the big topics. Mm-hmm. So 15% of our class got an FF and these are like some of the most intelligent people oh. I know so it was like there was a huge fallout with that but basically it was because um too many people had switched because that was part of our um the perks of our program It's like oh you can switch into any honors you want so basically they'd exceeded their quota for neuroscience and they had to find a way to cut people out basically so they still gave us all the credits (laughs) but they were like sorry you have to pick a different honors. oh my gosh yeah i know i know it's a lot of my friends and I talk about it um, even now because it's just like such a sore point you know. Yeah I'm not surprised. Yeah so I ended up doing my honours in medical biology but it ended up being good because that actually gave me more exposure to like the public health side of things. so it worked out.
0: Yeah so kind of like a silver lining to exam stress.
1: (laughs) Exactly but I feel like there's a huge difference between like the actual people and lecturers and the institution there's I don't know there's just I don't know where that bridge is between the two but there are some amazing amazing people at Edinburgh as an institution it does have a lot of issues so Mm. you know trying to find the balance and
0: yeah yeah and I think you hear that from a lot of people going to quite prestigious institutions like Mm. I think maybe the institution itself has some kind of reputation mm-hmm. and someone within there things have to change but actually the people you know mm. are wonderful
1: exactly exactly yeah. and i feel like it has gotten much much better as a postgrad so yeah
0: yeah that makes sense so i know you said that you were in scotland for a bit as a teenager mm-hmm. you know how have you found it being a black student in scotland
1: Yeah, so we moved around a lot. So we did live in England as well, different parts of England. Mm -hmm. Coming to Scotland was a culture shock, especially because we moved to a place called Motherwell and the accent there is really strong. People use a lot of slang. (laughs) So we were lost for a while. (laughs) But I feel like the people here are more open to strangers compared to England and Mm You know, like, it's not unusual for someone to come up to you at a bus stop and be like, oh, I really like your bag or, you know, I like your hair or whatever. So there are way, way fewer Black people here, but it felt more welcoming. But I I also know people that have had really awful experiences. So I honestly Mm -hmm. just think we were kind of lucky. But because I was so used to not having any diversity around me, I think it did help coming to uni because I was like, okay, it can be like this sometimes you kind of have to use it to your advantage Mm -hmm. so for example if you're networking you're going to be more memorable because you might be the only black person in the room you know
0: (laughs) that is true you gotta like twist it haven't you
1: exactly exactly but I think things are improving I'm seeing more and more black people on campus but (laughs) at the start it was sparse very very sparse
0: yeah and is there anything like is there anything that stood out to you while you've been an undergrad or a postgrad that you think is specifically related to you being Black or not really?
1: I don't think really, but I think it's just, especially in undergrad, just the lack of critical awareness because a lot of people that taught us were involved in, like, projects all around the world and, you know, so-called low-middle-income countries. And they looked at it in a very sort of clinical Sort of black and white way but it's like there just needs to be a lot more self-reflection going on and like people weren't picking them up on it and I don't know if I'm describing myself that well
0: I think I get what you mean like things were okay but it's just we need to keep the conversation open about things and not shy away from discussing ethnicity and race and cultural differences yeah
1: and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah yeah I get what you mean mm.
0: So I know you set up the initiative decolonizing Global Health. Can you tell me a bit more about that?
1: Yeah, so it was me and some other students. We basically, so there is a program that's kind of linked with the masters that I did in public health, and it's the MSc in Global Health Policy. Mm-hmm. And I did a lot of courses within that program because it was flexible to choose between the two. Mm-hmm. So I made friends there, and they can choose to do field work, you know, pre-corona in like an institution that was partnered with edinburgh so you know i knew someone that went to south africa to look at migration policy so it's like a little internship that you do abroad Mm -hmm. and it was after chatting to them and they were like it's so strange that we're not having any training on you know power dynamics of us coming from a prestigious western institution Mm -hmm. going into another country that is not your own and You know, how do you work with people and just, you know, the nuances of power and that kind of thing. So that was where it kind of came from. So it was actually just going to be like a small thing between our two departments, just like extra training. And then there were like strikes in the uni and then there was also the pandemic had just started. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it ended up being like an online Zoom and, and we managed to get some amazing speakers and they shared it on their social media. So it kind of blew up. Yeah. So we were, <laughs> we basically organised this online conference for one afternoon and it was amazing to see the response and especially because we were one of the first big zoom conferences this was back in April
0: and oh, really so that right at the beginning I right at the
1: beginning crazy. yeah so we learned a lot and <laughs> it was <laughs> a steep learning curve but um, yeah. I'm so glad that we did it because like to this day I still get emails about people that are watching it on our YouTube and engaging with the discourse and Oh,
0: brilliant.
1: yeah because it's now really taken off but when we put the conference together it was more of like an American thing so we spoke <laughs> to some students from Duke University who helped us plan our own conference mm-hmm. and now it's really taken off in the UK
0: yeah brilliant and like what's the impact been of kind of setting up this initiative and seeing it balloon
1: yeah so I mean it's basically kind of like a ripple effect isn't it so there were other groups that were also beginning to start up and then you know just the way the Duke University students helped us we helped some students at Karolinska Institute Mm -hmm. so it's kind of been like a knock-on effect which has been really cool and we've you know made amazing connections with people we've had dialogue with like staff members who run the master's programs to look at curriculum and you know, how people are being trained and, you know, even new opportunities. So from my Twitter, there was someone who reached out to me who's the national coordinator for Women in Global Health UK um, mm. because she'd heard about the decolonizing work that we were doing. And because of that, I then decided to apply as a committee member. So I'm now a blog editor with them. Oh,
0: incredible. Yeah. So it's
1: been really, really cool to like meet new people from not just in the UK, but around the world. Mm. So, yeah, I've been really grateful for that.
0: Yeah. It sounds like you've kind of been making institutional change with it, but also like global
1: mm. change. I, as hope. Well.
0: Incredible. <laughs> I hope. I hope. I <laughs> hope. Brilliant. And has this impacted your PhD at all? Like I know obviously you've joined more committees and mm. um a bit more involved, but has there been any specific changes related to you or your PhD?
1: Yeah, that's the thing. So it, it kind of helped me to be more self reflective and be like, yeah. you know, I'm studying a country, Bangladesh, that I unfortunately still haven't been to because of COVID. I had to cancel yeah my field trip plans.
0: oh that's so annoying. <laughs> I know
1: I know so it's like how do I engage with a country where you know the best you're getting is yeah interviews with local experts but you know it's not a place that I was familiar with before the PhD mm-hmm. so I think just being really transparent about that throughout my thesis as I'm writing it has been really useful but also it's it's been such a draw on my time. It has been very time consuming Yeah, because none of us planned for it to be a big thing. It was just gonna be like within our institution. So having to turn down a lot of things that people would like to collaborate on us with mm-hmm. and just trying to really <laughs> take control back of my time again and you know, not not giving in to people wanting to exploit us for free labor because at the end of the day, I'm being paid to do my PhD not all these other things
0: yeah and I think that brings up a really good point because with a PhD you you have so many opportunities Mm. like co-curricular opportunities but it it can be quite difficult Mm -hmm. it's quite easy to get wrapped up in all the other stuff and you actually do need to kind of like safeguard your own time with the PhD because that's what you're there for so I think that is a really important point great to take up these different initiatives Mm. but you have to manage your PhD alongside all of that.
1: Yeah, that's actually been one of the hardest things for me is because you're in an environment, you know, when you're doing your PhD, you're in an environment where there's so many amazing, like-minded people mm-hmm. and there's so many chances to collaborate and work on things, but you have to <laughs> stay focused. Like, it's great to be doing extra things, but, you know, your PhD has to come first. My, my supervisor, she's super, super supportive of all the things I'm doing but that's something that she does say like if i'm struggling to decide on something she'd be like okay your phd comes first like will it yeah. will it delay you by a lot or you know so having that in your mind is really really important cuz you know a phd can really drag on if you let it exactly mm.
0: all about time management yeah what a joy <laughs> brilliant all right so the last question I've got is what is one piece of advice you would give to other black people considering pursuing a PhD
1: Mm. I think absolutely do your research and you know make sure that it's something that you want to commit the next few years to but honestly I think the most important thing is your choice of supervisors Mm -hmm. like that's going to be the greatest defining factor of your years and I was really really fortunate to be in the same institution because I've been at Edinburgh for all of my university education. So during the master's, I was working as a research assistant with my other supervisor and I'd also done a bit of work with my main supervisor. Mm-hmm. So I knew that we had a good rapport and how we worked together. But honestly, they've been incredible in, like, in every way possible. And it's, right. yeah, so I feel really, really grateful for that so you have to know the people that you're going to be working with because it is it is like you are collaborating with them so you know especially for people that are going into interviews I would try and remember that like they're trying to see if you're suitable but you're also trying to see if they're suitable for you
0: exactly
1: yeah yeah there's a really great book I don't know if you've heard about it it's called Slay in Your Lane.
0: I've heard of it, but I've never
1: read it. Oh, it's really good. So in that book, it talks about, you know, the difference between a mentor, a sponsor and a coach. Okay. And, you know, a mentor is someone that you go to for advice that kind of, you know, cares about your professional development, but also your personal development. Mm -hmm. A coach is someone that helps you, you know, train and pick up the new skills that you need. But a sponsor is someone that also like puts you up for opportunities. And I'm really, really blessed to have, a combination of all of those three in my supervisors so it's really important to if you can speak to their previous students for people that you're looking at potential supervisors and I would definitely just go for it because I think it's an amazing opportunity and yeah one final thing would be you know especially a lot of people that have grown up in Black homes have had this whole notion of, you know, black excellence. You have to be twice as good to get, to get half of what other people get. But I saw something recently on Twitter that was saying, you know, technically your PhD thesis should be the worst piece of your work in your career. And I was like, okay. yeah, and I was like, that's actually quite refreshing because, yeah, of course, you're going to improve as you continue. So don't be too put off by oh, I don't necessarily fulfill every single requirement, because the whole point of a PhD is to learn how to do research, really. Exactly. Yeah. You
0: do not have to be the full package.
1: No, not at all. So yeah, I would absolutely just go for it. Like, It's an amazing opportunity, and it's a privilege to actually spend so much time on a particular topic that you're interested in.
0: Definitely agree with that. Right, on that note, I am going to end the interview. Thank you so much, Lois, for Thank speaking
1: with me today. Yeah, this has been really fun. Thank you so much.
0: It was great to have the chance to speak with Lois today, and I'm interested in hearing your thoughts from home. decolonization within research and academia is such an important issue. We want our research to be meaningful particularly in the communities we're seeking to help. And a core part of this is being aware and reflective of our ideals, the potential impact they may have. It was great to hear about Lois's global initiative, and I'm really keen to hear about what others are out there. As always, don't forget to use the hashtag BlackFutureDoctor with any comments on social media, and please feel free to leave a review if you enjoyed this episode. I'll see you all again next week.